As someone has remarked, the fish will be the last to discover water. People who know, who know no other cultural patterns but their own tend to regard them as God-given and intrinsically right. I love that quote because I feel like it just, it just cuts to the heart of this issue. When we're oblivious to our cultural patterns, we tend to assume they're normative and correct, even divine. And that egocentrism is the source of so much of our relational conflict. We assume our way of doing things is the right way of doing things. And that's why water is such an apt metaphor. Like water to a fish, cultures all around us. It's an inescapable part of our human existence. And it exerts influence on our lives even when we don't realize it. So in this series, we're going to explore many aspects of culture. Some that are wonderful and some that are insidiously evil. But culture is not one thing. Culture is complex. Culture is as multifaceted as the people that create it. Culture is powerful, and it forms us. Paying attention to the ways that we're being formed is a vital part of following Jesus, because Jesus calls us to be his disciples, to be formed by his way, the Jesus way, and not the ways of the world. So, the reason why we're devoting this series to the subject of culture is so that we recognize the ways that we're being malformed, so that we can repent of them, so that we can be properly formed by the Jesus way. We're also devoting this series to the subject of culture because we are an intentionally multi-ethnic, multicultural community. We believe that the gospel is not only about vertical, uh, vertical reconciliation between God and humanity— we believe the gospel is also about horizontal reconciliation between people groups. We believe that the gospel creates one new covenant, multi-ethnic family in Christ. So an essential part of our vision is to be a new people rooted in Christ. So that means we've got to talk about culture. Because we're all coming into this new family from different cultural backgrounds, different ways of viewing the world, different assumptions, and different expectations. So we need to learn about one another's cultures so that we can love one another. That's how you love someone. You learn about them. And this isn't just some idea I came up with. This is actually a commandment from Jesus. Jesus said, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We sang about that earlier. To love one another well, we have to learn about how we're different and how we're the same. We have to learn how to bridge those divides. We have to learn how to be part of each other's lives in meaningful and life-giving ways. We must learn how to honor each other's cultural identities and learn how to navigate the waters of the culture that we all swim in. And we're going to learn how to love one another. If we're going to learn how to love one another, we need swimming lessons, right? That's how we're going to do it. <laughs> so, okay, so Oshita and I have been on this journey for a long time. Our, um, together, we've been doing urban ministry for 14 years, uh, multi-ethnic, multicultural ministry. But, you know, um, even before we got married, we were doing it for another four or five years. So almost 20 years collectively of urban, multi-ethnic, uh, multicultural ministry in New Orleans, Boston, L.A. And so, um, you know, Oshita's going to join us in this series and teach. And I've also asked some other folks uh, to join us in this series. Um, 
when I have those dates and I have those names more shored up, I will announce them. Right now it's kind of a little bit in flux, but other folks are going to be joining us in this series. It's going to be great. And on top of all those folks, we're also going to be inviting in some of the scholarship that I think is really important. Um, there's a few names that have been influential for, on me and in my journey and in, in Oshida and I's journey. Uh, those names are Dr. Sungchan Ra, Dr. Christina Cleveland, Dr. Richard Twiss. So we're going to be, uh, you know, informed by a lot of their scholarship. In fact, on Wednesday nights, I'll be leading a, a group, and we'll be going through chapter by chapter Christina Cleveland's book, Disunity in Christ, which is a fantastic book. So you can join me on Wednesday evenings for that. Today's message is just an introduction. We're going to introduce this topic of culture. We're going to be asking questions like, what is culture? What exactly is it? What is this water we swim in? Where does it come from? And how is it supposed to work? What was God's design for culture? How is culture supposed to be uh, working in the world around us? Now, as we go on in the series, we're going to see all the many ways that culture can go wrong and the way the culture can malform us. But in this message... We just want to see how culture was intended, how God intended culture to work. So I'm entitling this message, Garden Culture. But before we dive in, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this thing uh, called culture. We thank you for the way that you intended it to be in our lives, to be a force for good, to be a force for uh, cultivation, for flourishing, We thank you that you have called us to join you, to partner in this culture-making endeavor. Lord, I pray that as we look into the scriptures this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be among us, giving us uh, insight, giving us words uh, from your Holy Spirit. Uh, May may everything I say uh, that is not of you, may it fall to the ground. But everything, Lord, that is of you, that you want us to hear, that you want us to see, Lord, may it be sealed in our hearts and in our minds this morning. And may it be used by your Spirit to transform us, to move us, to send us on this mission that we're joining you in. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So this morning we're going to talk about culture. And if we're going to ground this series in the scriptures, if we're going to go to the Bible and to the story of the Bible, we have to start where the story of the Bible starts. So we're going to be in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 this morning. If you have a Bible, a a translation of the Bible, you can follow along in your own translation, or you can follow along on the the slides behind me. But we're going to be in the book of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And just for context, I'm going to set this up for you in case uh, you're not that familiar with it. Uh, Genesis 1 is this beautifully poetic creation narrative. God has separated light from darkness, made day and night. God has separated uh, waters from waters and made land, sea, and sky. And now all these things are teeming with new life. And then God plants a garden uh, in God's good world, and he creates humanity, the crown of creation. And a creature unlike all the other creatures. And this creature is said is made in God's image. So we're going to start in chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. You can follow along on the slide behind me, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the things that crawl on the earth. Verse 27. 
God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. Verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be, f- be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. Now, a little bit of a confession here. For a long time, I thought that this image of God thing was mostly to do with humanity's unique consciousness, the, the big prefrontal cortex, our free agency, our rationality. Uh, that's what I thought this image of God thing was all about for many, many years. Something shifted, though, when I began to understand more of the historical cultural context that this is written in, when I started to learn more about the ancient Near East and what the image of God meant in that context. What I learned is that image of God was a term that meant divine representative. So, for example, in ancient Egypt, Pharaoh alone was considered the image of God. Pharaoh alone, the king, reflected and represented God on earth. So that means that Genesis is this counter-narrative. Genesis is saying something different than ancient Egypt. Genesis is saying that every human being is God's representative on earth. And this is incredibly significant. This means that the image of God is less about an attribute that you and I possess, and it's more about a calling to which we are blessed, or with which we are blessed. Verse 28 tells us more about what it means to be God's image bearers. God blesses humanity and commands humanity to master the earth, to take charge of the animal kingdom. And that's how the, uh, the common English Bible translates those two Hebrew words. It's not a bad translation, but we should be careful not to get confused. The mastering that's spoken of here is talking about a struggle against an enemy, a deadly enemy. It's speaking of when forces that lead to death, are halted, prevented from wreaking havoc. This means that humanity was charged with a protective role, a guarding role, protecting life against the forces of death at work in the world. This also means that we are not called to exploit the creation. It means that we we are not to consume the creation to the point of desolation. That's not what mastering means. That's abusive. So that's not what we're talking about. It's also important that we don't get confused about this taking charge language. The kind of rule that is implied here is fleshed out later in the Bible in the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, uh, there's a psalm about the coronation of King Solomon. That's King David's son, who's famous for wisdom and wealth. In, in Psalm, uh, what is it, 27? Did I put it up on the screen? What happened? We lost it. (laughs) There it is. It's Psalm 72. In Psalm 72, this is about the coronation of Solomon. And this gives us an insight into what what does it mean to rule. May he rule from sea to sea. Here's what it means to rule. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. That's the kind of taking charge that God has called humanity to do. 
It's not exploiting. It's not consuming. It's not abusive. It's justice-making. It's shalom-seeking. It's stewardship. That's the kind of rule that God calls us to. I like this translation. A writer once translated Genesis 1.28. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and have children. Fill the earth with your life so that they can have power to fight against everything in it that leads to death. Rule with care and fairness over the natural world, over the myriads of my beautiful creatures, from tropical fish to soaring eagles to dogs and cats, every creature that is part of this living world. I like that translation. It's good. And I think it's, the, it's this more nuanced understanding of the mastering and the taking charge is the reason why chapter 2 of Genesis zooms in on the characters of humanity and on the setting of the story. So in chapter 2, the narrative focuses on God's creation of human beings and sets them in this unique place. Let's look at two verses from chapter 2. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but just two verses, starting in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and put the human he had formed there. Verse 15. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. That's the common English Bible's um, translation of that word, to farm it, to take care of it to till the soil, to, to make it fertile and make it fruitful. Isn't it interesting that this text says that God planted the garden? For many, many years, I, I instinctively thought about the Garden of Eden as a place that the, that the human beings created, that they made it into a garden. But it says that God planted a garden. I think this is a huge clue as to what it means to, to be an uh, image bearer of God. God is a gardener and creates human beings in God's image, so God wants human beings to be gardeners too. We are called to farm, to keep, to tend, to work within the world. The garden is a fundamentally different kind of place than a forest, if you think about it, or a field, even a field. There's something uh, specific about a garden. There's planning that takes place in a garden. Intentionality, labor, care. You can tell that a person was at work in a garden. A garden is not a free-flowing patch of land. It's not wild growth. A garden is where a person has intervened into the natural pattern of growth and has put up fences or put up uh, places where there's new soil. And I want this to be a garden right here and this to be a bed here. A garden is a place for pruning, for watering, for nurturing. And this is where the story begins for us in the Bible. It begins in a garden. This tells us what, a lot about what God means by take care of the earth, what God means by rule over the earth. God means that we are to cultivate this place, this creation. Culture is cultivation of life. Culture is the application of our God-given intelligence, creativity, strength, and agency into the raw materials of life that God has entrusted us with. Culture is like a form of gardening. It's channeling these raw materials and helping them to grow, to blossom, to flower. I love the word flourish. 
God has called us to cultivate the earth so that it would flourish. By placing humanity in garden, this narrative tells us something is significant about our calling. One of my professors in seminary, one of my mentors, Dr. Sung Chan Ra, he writes this about Genesis 1.28. Genesis 1.28 reveals a connection between being made in the image of God and the ability to mirror God through the recreation of God's image through culture. Genesis 1.28 reminds us that part of creation order is to go forth and create life, families, social systems, and cultures. This blessing from God is God's calling to human beings to partner with God in stewarding, ruling, and cultivating God's good world. Another writer, Nancy Piercy, put it like this. I think this is good. The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world. Build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world. Plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that that our original purpose was to create culture, to build civilizations. So culture is our God-given calling to join God in the ongoing process of creation. God is not done creating. God is creating new life in and through us. Culture is how human beings express the image of God and co-create with God. That's the first thing I want you to remember about garden culture, is that we are called to co-create with God. But the narrative in Genesis 1 and 2, also gives us insight into what kind of culture we are called to create. The creation narrative speaks of God creating man and woman in God's image. The two individually and collectively reflect God's image. And this is important because one of the first things culture will do is culture will teach us how to relate to one another. That's one of the first things culture will do. I was listening to NPR the other day in the car, And they were talking about how Saudi Arabia is beginning to open itself up to tourism. Have you heard about this? They're thinking about having designated places where uh, uh, Westerners and other folks can come and just tour Saudi Arabia. But of course, this is challenging, right? Because Saudi Arabia is a closed country. It's been closed for a very, very long time. And because the laws in Saudi Arabia are very restrictive, so, so this is what the reporter did to make it, like, put a positive spin on it. She said, but Saudi Arabia has come a long way. Women are allowed to drive cars there now. That was the positive spin. <laughs> did you know that patriarchy is cultural? It's a cultural pattern. It's a way of relating to one another. Patriarchy can sometimes be disguised as divine mandate. Right? Remember what we said at the beginning? That when we don't know any other cultural patterns, we can believe that our own cultural patterns are God-given. Patriarchy uh, is often thought of as biblically based, based in the Bible. There's even a school of thought um, that's unfortunately very, very widespread in Western Christianity that teaches that Genesis teaches patriarchy, the relationship between men and women. Um, And I have a confession. 
when I was a first-year Bible college student, I bought into that system. I did. There was a, a season, uh, a few semesters, when I was reading a lot of books by John Piper and other writers like him, and I was persuaded. I thought this was a biblical view of men and women and their relationship. But over time, with the help of some very loving and gifted mentors and friends, both men and women, I eventually saw that the supposed evidence for this didn't add up. The fact is, patriarchy is culturally driven and not driven by the biblical narrative. Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says that God created humanity male and female, and they equally bear the image of God. That they bear the image of God, and they share this calling to create culture together. That's what it says. God created them in the divine image. God blessed them, plural. The beauty of this poetic expression is that God's image, God's very image, has in it plurality and unity. Unity with diversity. And later on, Jesus is going to reveal that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That truth is going to come into full clarity But even back here in the garden, we see that God's image is a celebration of unity with diversity. So, this aspect of our calling is central to how we we navigate this new multi-ethnic reality that we call the church. When Christ created this new family, he brought together Jews and Gentiles into one family. And now we are swimming in that culture. The body of water that we're swimming in is made up of many streams, flowing from many different tributaries, many different cultures. So to celebrate the unity and diversity that we find in the body of Christ, we must learn how to swim in it. We must learn different swimming strokes. So as the series goes on, we're going to talk about the ways in which we have the potential to misunderstand one another because we come together from so many different backgrounds. We have the potential for conflict. But this also introduces the potential for great growth. Here's my, here's my, uh, my new favorite um, metaphor for multi-ethnic ministry, multi-ethnic church. The Instapot. How many of you know about the Instapot? Juice and Ginger have been preaching the gospel of Instapot, and we have bought it. Like, well, not physically bought it, but we have bought the gospel. Like, we're, we're into it. We just have to make that purchase. The Instapot, if you don't already know, combines the best parts of crockpot cooking and pressure cooking. So it creates crockpot dishes in a fraction of the time. But wait, there's more. <laughs> I turned into an infomercial. That was great. Multi-ethnic, multicultural church is the instapot of Christian discipleship. You like that? It turns up the heat and applies the pressure. There's something about being in a multi-ethnic church. There's something about being in a church that is made up of misfits from all different backgrounds that contributes to our growth and maturity in Christ that homogenous churches just don't have. When you are surrounded by people who are just like you, you are rarely challenged to think differently. You're rarely challenged to grow into new practices and to love people who are different from you. So, garden culture. 
the foundation that God builds humanity upon is a calling, first of all, to co-create with God, co-create culture. Secondly, it's the celebration of unity with diversity. But there's a third aspect of garden culture that's foundational. And I think it's very subtle. We can miss it very easily. We see a glimpse of it in chapter 3. In chapter 3, this is where the narrative begins to take a turn. And a new character is introduced into the story, the crafty serpent. And the crafty serpent, we're going to see later, is going to pervert God's words and deceive humanity. And it's going to be a very important part of our, uh, the way culture corrupts. But before that happens, we see something very subtle. I'm going to show you in verse um, 8 of chapter 3. It's just the beginning of verse 8. During the day, or during the day's cool evening breeze, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. This is a beautiful little glimpse into the culture of the garden. What was the garden like before sin and death creeped in? Well, one thing we see is that the Lord God walked with humanity in the cool of the day. It's a beautiful picture. I think it's a picture of shalom. I think it's a picture of harmony and wholeness. God and humanity were not separated by anything. They were together just enjoying each other's fellowship. It signifies that God and humanity are rightly related to each other and that humanity, male and female, were rightly related to one another. So the third aspect of garden culture is that there are practices that signify trusting, harmonious relationships. Intimate fellowship between God and humanity and between people. As we continue uh, to explore the subject of culture, this is the foundation I want us to start with. The way God intended culture to work. God intended culture to create shalom. These practices that draw us together into harmonious fellowship. Sometimes it's not easy to recognize uh, the culture that's all around us. And we're going to talk about how to do that. But culture is at least some of these things. Let me, let me give you a quick synopsis. Culture is at least the language we speak, right? The languages we speak. Because the languages we speak is the way that we communicate with one another, the way that we think. Culture is at least the clothes that you and I wear or we, the clothes that we choose to wear because it expresses how we, we perceive ourselves and how we want to be perceived. Culture is at least the practices that we form us, especially the practices that form us when we don't realize we're being formed. Those are especially powerful. Culture is the way that we relate to one another, the concepts that frame our relationships, like patriarchy. In this series, we're going to talk about how culture causes us to relate differently to things like time, money, marriage, parenting, food, and a whole host of other things. Culture is at least the art that we create and the way that we approach truth, like postmodern culture or modern culture, Western culture, Eastern culture. Culture is what shapes our identities. But culture is not one thing. Catch this. This is important. Culture is not static. Culture is dynamic. And the reason why that is is because every culture is created by human beings. 
dynamic living creatures made in the image of a dynamic living God. So cultures are dynamic. Even cultures that exist to resist change end up changing. That's why we have a reformation in the church, right? That's why there was a reformation. A a culture that was set up to resist change underwent a transformation that's changed the world. I like this metaphor for culture. I'm going to give one more metaphor. Don't get lost in all the metaphors. I like this metaphor that Dr. Rao uses in his book, Many Colors, Cultural Intelligence for a Changing Church. He uses a technology metaphor. And this appeals to me as as a techie nerd person. So bear with me for a minute. To put it simply, culture is the software of the mind. Software is the set of programs that gives a specific type of production for a computer. The software that gets installed onto the hardware will determine how it functions. Culture as software means that patterns of thinking, feeling, and acting, or mental programs, software of the mind, indicate what reactions are likely and understandable. But watch this. Through our cultural context and our social experiences, the software of culture is downloaded. That's how we get this cultural software, through our cultural context and our social experiences. The source of one's mental programs lies in the social environments in which one grew up and collected one's life experiences. Hardware may have severe limitations on how it can be used, but software, like cultural software, has a degree of flexibility and adaptability. You can get updates. We can download some on-the-fly updates, right? (laughs) Some new content can be downloaded into your cultural software. Just like uh, Dr. Ra's book talks about cultural intelligence, we're going to use that metaphor, swimming lessons. We're going to download some new uh, software, some updates for your software, and learn how to navigate the cultural waters that we swim in. Um, to close, I, I, I want to uh, <laughs> use, use this technology metaphor just one more time. Uh, how many of you use a PC? Windows PC, right? How many of you use a Mac? Raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> Minority of Mac users here, surprisingly. Okay, so, uh, so I grew up using only Macs. And I remember the first time I used a Windows PC. I was uh, 17 years old, and I got a job in an office that had segregated departments, Linux, Windows, and Mac OS, right? And I had to work on this cross-platform project that required me to go and do some work in the Windows department. And I remember being like, what is this start button? And why is it here? Who needs a start button? And they would tell me things like, you need to press Control-Alt-Delete. And I'd be like, why would you have to do that? Or right-click, right-click on this. What, why do I need to right-click on anything? And I, later on, went on to work at the Apple Store in Boston. I worked at an Apple Store retail store. And I I led many people away from evil Windows uh, operating system into the beautiful Mac paradise. And I remember them being like, where's the start button? Where's the right click? You know, and I got to say, we don't need that. That's great. It's great that we don't need that. Uh, That was my cultural software in a very kind of literal way. I'm a Mac person. You know, like, like uh, what's that guy's name? Yes. 
So in in the commercial, I used to love these commercials. Uh, Justin's character uh, is the cool, hip, you know, creative one. <laughs> and uh, what is it? Hodgman, John Hodgman, is the nerd. Do you guys remember these commercials? Okay, good. I was like, are these old? How old are these? All right, this is where we're headed in this series. We want to expose our cultural assumptions. We want to bring them into the light. We want to see the water that we're swimming in so that we can compare it to the kingdom of God. We can compare it to Jesus' way. And that way we can repent of the sinful ways that we've been malformed by culture, like windows. (laughs) Uh, All of this is for the purpose of loving one another. Right? If we're going to uh, if we're gonna be a reflection of God's love in the world in our fellowship, we have to learn more about each other and how to, how to navigate the different cultural um, currents that we live in, that we swim in. All right, so next week, we're going to dive into when culture corrupts. We're going to talk about how when sinfulness creeps into our cultural software and causes idolatry and injustice. But for now, let's, uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for this blessing that you've given us. You've blessed us with a calling to co-create with you, to be gardeners in your good world, to help your creation flourish and be fruitful, and to be stewards of your good world. Thank you for this calling to be culture makers. God, we pray that uh, as we go through this series, that you would be at work in our lives, helping us to see the water that we're swimming in all around us. See the ways in which uh, you are at work through culture. See the ways in which you are building us up, equipping us, strengthening our lives through culture, and the ways that we are being malformed. The ways in which culture is drawing us away from that garden shalom. The way in which you intended culture to work in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the water clearly that we're swimming in so that we can be properly formed into the Jesus way and so that we can love one another, so we can be your disciples and everyone would see your love through our relationships. God, we pray for this series that you would, uh, bl- you would bless it, that you would make it a blessing for us, that you make it a blessing uh, to all those that we come into contact with. Help us to see clearly the way in which you are forming us. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.